Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Welcome, everybody, on this Sunday, April 16th, 2023, to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Dreesline, host here for the next one hour. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, big week, crazy week weather-wise, huh, everybody? We had the trout opener yesterday. Uh, challenging probably conditions out there, especially today for trout anglers. I can't imagine that too many bugs were hatching off uh, the area streams for uh, for our trout anglers. We had the, uh, well, first, gosh, we, what, what, we had 80, 90 degrees. I was commuting. I think I saw 90-plus on my, uh, my temperature gauge on my vehicle Thursday, Friday, uh, Wednesday, that time period. Like Tuesday, there was still ice on the pond behind my house. Uh, I think by Thursday night, I was hearing tree frogs, uh, spring peepers out there, which is one of my favorite sounds of spring. And I got, I, got, I can't imagine they're doing much peeping out there uh, today, uh, given that I'm seeing a couple inches of snow on the ground in my uh, suburban yard here in the southwest metro. Uh, somewhere in there, we also kicked off the turkey hunting season. Uh, I think it got off to a pretty good start. I got to think a lot of hunters were very happy to be out in warm conditions without any bugs yet. Uh, and uh, I've seen a lot of pictures come through. Eric Morkin, uh, one of my uh, staffers at Outdoor News, uh, OutdoorNews.com, uh, he uh, posted a nice picture yesterday of a big tom that he took. So congratulations to young Eric with a with a big gobbler. I'm seeing others like that popping up on social media. I'm sure we'll have some in uh, this week's print edition of my newspaper. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, what, what's weekend weather like this do to the gobbling activity when the temperature plunges, you know, daytime highs plunge 60 degrees in a matter of a couple days? Uh, the last segment of this week's show, we will jump into that very question with my old friend Mark Strand. Mark is a longtime turkey hunter, uh, baby boomer who's been killing birds for many, many decades, and we'll talk to him a little bit about some turkey hunting tactics and talk a little bit about what this weather means for uh, for trying to chase gobblers uh, this time of year in the early season. Uh, middle two segments of this week's broadcast, we're going to have our friend uh, Marilyn Vetter. Marilyn is the new CEO and president of White Bear Lake based Pheasants Forever. We talked about we talked about Marilyn taking on that role uh, back in was it February, right around when the the uh, that organization had its Pheasant Fest at the Minneapolis Convention Center. She took over the job then, and we're going to see how she's doing. I guess we're a couple months into it now, a little month and a half, something like that. So we'll see how that's going. I'm looking forward to getting to know Marilyn a little bit, and we'll uh, we'll spend some time with her on WCCO Outdoors. Like I say, we'll have Mark Strand with us at the end. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, a couple other items before we go to break, a couple other thoughts. Uh, we, we did have the governor's turkey opener down in Northfield yesterday. <clears throat> I saw the um, governor and some other uh, politicians here in Minnesota, posting some nice social media pictures. Looked like a lot of uh, action and, and a, a good camaraderie down there in Northfield. Uh, so congratulations to those guys. You know, there's a big fishing auction going on this week that I wanted to mention real quick. Minfish, an organization we've talked to here. Mark Holston, the executive director, has joined us a time or two. Uh, they're they're an organization that's invested in promoting good fishing here in Minnesota. And they're ra- trying to raise some money. They've got an online auction going on this week. I think it runs April 18th to the 20th. So check it out. There's a bunch of once-in-a-lifetime experiences that you can bid on. Uh, it's, you can go fishing with some of the nation's top anglers. I think Ron Shearer's in there, Tackle Terry Tuma. I think the Linders have, have donated some uh, fishing trips. So 
Uh, check that out. Uh, to view all the experiences, go to mn-fish.com. That's minfish.com. Good organization, like we say, working on some things legislatively this year uh, You know, at the state capitol. Uh, speaking of the state capitol, I've spoken quite a bit about this carp barrier that they're considering trying to build down at Lock and Dam 5. And we had a guest a couple weeks ago from the Minnesota Conservation Federation, very concerned that that money might not be coming forth. Uh, I was hearing late this past week that there's it's got some new life in the bonding bill. So however you feel about that issue, um, it, it's, it hasn't gone away. And I, I kind of wonder if maybe some of the publicity it's gotten, uh, some of the outdoor media sources, uh, I've written about it. We've talked about it here. Dennis Anderson had a blistering column on it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, perhaps all that gave it a little bit of new life. Uh, and uh, maybe by next week I'll know uh, some more details about that. Uh, closer to home, I attended a legislative town meeting with a couple of my state reps and state senators yesterday in Chanhassen. I appreciate them holding meetings like that. I wasn't thrilled with the format. There wasn't a lot of back and forth between the audience and the legislators. And they like, you know, they want to do that so it doesn't get out of control and it doesn't get crazy. I understand that, but it doesn't feel quite as democratic, for lack of a better word, when the format is that constricted. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a lot of politicians in this country that never, ever meet face-to-face with their constituents. So I, I appreciate that they actually did that. <clears throat> it was supposed to be an hour, and it, it got going late, which irritated me, and they didn't devote a whole hour to actually answering questions that were submitted prior to the meeting or on note cards. Uh, the, I thought the introductions went too long, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, again, I guess I appreciate that when politicians meet with their constituents directly like they did. Uh, they did not I, – I, I wanted to ask some environmental conservation kind of questions. None of that came up. You know, they talked about climate uh, and energy. So to so many politicians these days, that's what environment means. It means climate change. And you know, there's so much more involved, <laughs> so many other important issues of affecting conservation and the environment than just climate change. Uh, it's unfortunate that that's what it distills down to for so many politicians these days. But uh, anyway, that that's a longer topic, I guess, for another time. So we should probably get thinking about taking a break here. Like I say, I'm here till 6, then stay tuned for 60 minutes. Uh, from 7 to 8, Online Trading Academy will be, get going. And then we're all in all in for, for the Timberwolves. From 8 to 9, Steve Thompson will be doing a preview to the pregame. At 9 o'clock, there will be the pregame show. And at 9.30, your Timber, Timberwolves game one of their first round in the playoffs against the Denver Nuggets. So uh, lots of uh, lots of T-Wolves action coming at you tonight. With that, let's break. We will uh, return with our interview with Marilyn Vetter from Pheasants Forever. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors. I'm very excited to have an interview today with Marilyn Vetter, the new CEO of Pheasants Forever right here in Minnesota. We reported last year that longtime CEO Howard Vincent was retiring, and then a lengthy search process kicked off, and it concluded with the announcement that Marilyn Vetter would be leading the organization in 2023 and beyond. She joins us now. Marilyn, welcome, and congratulations on a great Pheasant Fest, which was the official start to your tenure as the group's new leader. Thank you. It was. It was not only the big reveal for me, but for Howard, so it was a fun time. It was a great, great event, and the energy around the entire event was it was pretty incredible, honestly. What did you have, like 33,000 people there this year? It was, it was a big show. 
Yeah, it was just north of that. And it was our, certainly our biggest ever. And you could tell. You could tell the enthusiasm on the floor. All of the vendors said the same thing. And it, I think it was a culmination of a lot of things, 40-year anniversary, Howard's mm-hmm. retirement, kind of a national convention. A lot of chapters came. And I think people were just ready to get together in a big way. Well, next year, back to Sioux Falls, correct? It is. For folks who did not read maybe the uh, the story in Outdoor News or the press release from Pheasants Forever last fall, let's talk a little bit about your background again. You're uh, originally from North Dakota, but your business background, I believe, was in the pharmaceutical industry, and then you joined the PF board eight years ago? Yeah, in 2015. Yeah, it's a, not necessarily the path that most people would suspect that I came from. I did grow up on a cattle ranch in central North Dakota, youngest of seven kids, and went into communications when I went to the University of North Dakota with a minor in political science and started really my career as, as a broadcast journalist in Bismarck. Hmm. Had a really good friend who was in the pharmaceutical industry, and no surprises that when you work in the journalism industry, they're it's a little tough sometimes to to make ends meet. And we were commiserating about that. And she said, you know, you have an outgoing personality. You should maybe think about pharmaceutical sales. And it was one of those things that I was like, I don't know if I can see myself as a salesperson. And then (laughs) what I really realized was that the industry, like so many industries, is really about creating ways to help people. And when I could get my head around that, it really became a passion for for me. And I did join a pharmaceutical company. I was a part of three of them over the 30 years I was in the industry. Alongside that, I spent a lot of time volunteering, and that included Pheasants Forever when I joined the board in 2015, but was also part of the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, or NAVDA, as both a judge, member of their executive council, uh, local chapters. My husband and I have been involved in that organization for well over 30 years. So really, volunteerism has been part of me since the beginning. My mom and dad were very active, whether it was in their communities or with their neighbors, with their families, and they just created a spirit of of giving in all of us. And it was they were really excellent role models for their kids. So you jumped on the PF board in 2015. And I think the general public, now I, I've been on a couple boards, so I, I understand how nonprofit boards work. But there might be a lot of folks out there listening who are like, you know, I hear that term board. You know, what does that mean? Tell us about what it's like to be a part. And you were eventually what the vice chair, I believe, of the, the Pheasants Forever QF board. What What's it like to function? How does it work? And how important is a board to an organization like PFQF? So yeah, I did end up being the vice chair towards the end of, of my tenure. You know, the board's job really is three things. Hire and hopefully never have to fire a CEO, make sure that the fiduciary responsibility of the organization has some good oversight, and make sure that the strategic planning process is aligned with the mission of the organization, with the mission of the board. And so they really should look at things from a 30,000-foot level. They should not be involved in the day-to-day work. They should not be involved in hiring other people within the organization. That's really up to the, the folks inside the organization. Also, for the CEO, oftentimes a sounding board 
of challenges maybe that the organization is facing in some or some boards and particularly in Pheasants Forever, we've always invited the executive team to be part of that process. And so the exec team sits in on the board meetings, they present to the board each time, which gives them a tremendous amount of connection to the executives in the organization and the work that they're doing, whether it's in development, conservation, marketing, and certainly the finances. And it really is an integral part of Pheasants Forever because our board is also really passionate about it, as they should be. And they're all enthusiasts themselves, conservationists, pheasant and quail hunters, and and they really care very much about the success of the organization and the staff. One board for both organizations, Marilyn? That is correct. And how many members on that board? It fluctuates a bit. So we're sitting around, I think we're at about the 16 member point mm-hmm. right now. Uh, we can go a little bit larger. You, you, you don't want to... I right. guess in my mind, I've been on boards where there's 40, 50 people yeah, wow. and boy, you don't really get consensus then. And it's not really a board. And that ends up being a very staff driven organization when you have to do that. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors on this Sunday, April 16th. I am Rob Jerislein, and we are chatting with Marilyn Vetter. She's the new president and CEO of White Bear Lake based Pheasants Forever chatting a little bit with her about how the job is going thus far. Let's talk a little about the hiring process. It sounded pretty intense, Marilyn. Uh, 150 people, is my understanding, applied for the job when Howard Vincent announced that he was going to be retiring. Uh, I believe uh, the press release or the story that we had said, what, 12 or 15? They kind of whittled it down. And then, uh, was it a half dozen or so actually interviewed in front of the board? That that sounds like a pretty intense process. You were familiar with the board, so I, I presume it felt like a friendly environment. Like I say, you've worked for several pharmaceutical organizations over the years. Was it a more intense hiring process than you had encountered before, or did it kind of seem par for the course? No, it was really intense, and it was incredibly <laughs> thorough. I think Good. that was probably the part that resonated the most with me, was that in fact, when I when I posted for the position, you know, I, I spoke to the board chair, Matt Kaharski, and I said, I really want this to feel like I am coming in at the same point as everyone else. He said, don't worry, the recruiting agency will make sure uh, that, in fact, my name was, um, and everybody's names, were blinded to the nominating committee until they got down to some of those more finalized candidates. And the general board wasn't aware of of my application until the end, so that it wouldn't necessarily cloud anyone's oh. either positive or negative perception sure. that they had of me. And so I mm-hmm. thought that was was really, really important to the yeah, process. That was a responsible way to do it. Absolutely. It really was. Mm-hmm. And, and I appreciated that because I wanted them to, at the end, feel like they picked the right person. But they did have us do a lot of different things, which I thought was really important. So when you're in this position, you, you have to communicate well both verbally and also in written form. So that the first step was not only your application, but then I think they picked a little more than 20 folks to answer a really in-depth questionnaire. And I think mine ended up being like six or seven pages long. And I think some were probably even longer. So that nominating committee had to go through a lot of documents. Mm-hmm. From there, they picked the next layer of folks we had to do a presentation to the board. The final step of the process was a couple of us presenting virtually to the board. I should say the first level actually was, was presenting to the nominating committee, not the full board, because it would have been a lot to try to get all those folks in the room at the same time. So that nominating committee really carried a lot of weight for the organization. They invested a tremendous amount of time. So it was it probably seemed intense for me, but I bet it was really intense for them. 
I know you've only really been in the role full time for a month, and and Howard is still with the organization. Is that correct? He's formally done later this spring, correct? Correct. He is officially done on June thirtieth. He is not coming into the office right now. He's he's really helping us try to walk this balance of I'm here when you need me. Mm-hmm. I'm a phone call away. And, and we engage him when, particularly when things are more historical or institute knowledge, institutional knowledge that I have to tap into. But he's removed himself from decision making. He has stepped back so that I can and so that the, can the staff really get invested in this new process. Sure. So he's around when we need him. He's, okay. I, I guess he's got his own bat phone. That's perfect. We need to go to break, Marilyn, but one one quick last board question before we do that. And then the next segment, we'll talk more about some of the, the fun things. But I'm a little curious, you know, now that you're in the CEO role, do you view the board in a, in a, with a little different lens? Is it a little different dynamic? Curious if, if you've noticed any change in that, that relationship, I guess, a month into the job. Not so much the relationship. Now I see it from a different perspective because when you're on the board, I guess you don't know what you don't know. And now I sit here and I, I see information and I think, huh, I wonder if the board, do they need to see this? Do they want to see this? Mm-hmm. And when should they see it? And so it's it's learning that process of what really elevates to a board level. Actually, it's been a good experience for me professionally because it's teaching me patience and it's saying, let's let this ride out a little bit. And once it's resolved, we can let the board know. And what I do is really kind of tap into our board chair and say, is this something that you think the board needs to see now, later, or not at all? But it has taught me a very different viewpoint of the relationship between the organization and the board. Marilyn, you'll stick around for another segment? You bet. That is Marilyn Vetter. She's the new president and CEO of Pheasants Forever, based right here in Minnesota. We're going to go to break. We'll continue with our interview when we return. This is WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, dear listeners, to this Sunday, April 16th edition of WCCO Outdoors. Hey, we're in the middle of a fun interview with Marilyn Vetter. She's the new president and CEO of White Bear Lake, Minnesota-based Pheasants Forever. Uh, we talked a lot about some of the uh, the nitty-gritty board uh, issues and what it's like to become the new CEO in the last segment. Let's get into some of the fun stuff here with this segment, Marilyn. You own a, a kennel also, is that right? You're into GSPs, uh, German short hair pointers? That is correct. My husband and I have had short hairs since, I think, 1990 now. And, uh, you know, it's we started, like everybody, as a hobby, got our first one, and then... We tend to be the people that jump into the deep end of the pool, and then we had two, then we had three, and then and then it was we started kennel, and he became a dog trainer, and now seventy plus litters later, thirty some <laughs> years later, uh, you know it it adds up pretty quick when you just do a couple a year. It doesn't take very many years to get to that many uh, litters along the way, and it's for us it has connected us to our best friends in the world. It really has been an amazing way to connect to other conservationists, other hunters, and really watch families grow around their pups. In fact, we had one go home this weekend. The young boy was, I don't think he's 12 yet, or he's pretty close to 12. And he was so excited because his dad was buying him his first GSP and that he's going to run it through the NAVDA testing system. And we got a photo of him that night on his way home with his pup in his lap and his little sharpshooter's kennel hat on, and they were both sleeping. And those are the kind of priceless moments of that, that whole part of our lives. 
Yep. It's kind of fun the all the the dynamics and the arguments that people have about different breeds of dogs and the uh, the dog parade that Pheasant Fest holds every year <laughs> is a great opportunity to see all the different breeds. Have you ever thought about uh, you know a different breed, or are you going to be GSPs for life? Well, probably be. I don't know. We talk about this like okay, once we get older, we can't tromp around as much. You know what we what would we get? If I didn't have to groom an English setter, I would probably think about English setters just because I love the way they move and watching them in the field. I'm just not a, a very tolerant. I grew up with collies and I mm. had to groom the dogs all the time. And oh, so wow. I think I probably don't have a lot of tolerance for that. The other thing that we've <laughs> really enjoyed, we went to an English Cocker Nationals. Oh, it's been a long time now, but man, were those little dogs fun and particularly for pheasant hunting. Marilyn, you've been on the job for about a month. Any surprises thus far about the internal workings of the organization or the size and the scope of the organization that maybe you didn't understand when you took the job? I can't say any surprises. The one thing that I would say that I've been really, really happy to see is how well the team works together. It's a very large, complex organization, and they really are extraordinarily communicative with each other. And, you know, you think about this is a we were hybrid before hybrid was cool because our employees are scattered all across the country and mm. it's really important that they communicate and collaborate. And that's only done with tremendous intention when you're spread across geographies. I would say if there's any surprise, maybe it's just the complexity of things, you know, and probably, probably the one thing I'm still, I will say I'm going to be learning for a while yet is the alphabet soup of the acronyms in this space. It's, oh, yeah. I carry my little, uh, the team <laughs> created a 10 page glossary for all of us to have. And I carry it everywhere with me so that when I'm listening to someone and they, they bring up a new acronym, I can look it up. And it's the different be agencies, while. the different programs. You dropped a stat at Pheasants Forever during the CEO panel, which by the way, was a lot of fun to cover. It was, what were there, eight or 10 CEOs, some of the you know best and brightest minds in conservation from around the country. But I believe you dropped a stat that Pheasants Forever has the most biologist in one organization, this side of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? Is that what you said? That is correct. We have the largest number of biologists focused on private lands of, of any organization, quite honestly, in, in the country. There's That's, over 300 biologists. How many, how many employees total within Pheasants Forever these days, Marilyn? We're shy of about 500. Quickly approaching uh, Quail Forever is just about half of the organization. Okay. Now, I remind you that half, you know, there's some parts of the organization like myself that represent both and right. as do, you know, all of the support staff internally. And But when you look at the biology team, um, the wildlife biologists, they are quite honestly, almost half of that organization. Quail country is a big part of the country. And so it's, it, again, like everything else, it's very dispersed. And, and we've been, because we've been successful um, agencies have actually embraced that and said, you know, just as important as Pheasants Forever was in Pheasant Country Quail Forever is quickly establishing itself down in the southeast and southwest and even in the, the southern quail country of the Midwest part of the country. And so the biologists, they're the single big biggest group of employees you have there, correct? That is correct. How do you sustain or even grow an entity as successful as Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? You know, we, we talk about license sales around the country plateauing or maybe even declining. You know, looking ahead, PF's been on a great run. Like you say, it's expanding with, with QF, and that a lot of that occurred under Howard. What's your growth curve? How does conservation broaden its appeal so that, uh, you know, when you decide to retire, you're looking back on an organization that's even bigger and more vibrant? 
It's a really important question. And one thing that I think a lot about, and I, <laughs> I know this organization does too, because you know, obviously there's a lot of agencies, both at the state and federal levels that are incredibly invested in the work that we're doing. And that will only continue to grow. And when you look at things like the North American Grasslands Act and RAWA and others that are additive to the space, the things that we have to think about is, is how do we grow the support functions internally to support that growth? And Howard has laid a tremendous groundwork for us to be able to do that. But it's one of those things that when agencies come to us, we say, well, that's great. We want to help you. We absolutely want to make sure that we're focused 100% on habitat, but we have to have the support team internally as well in both the HR and in technology and the finance teams to be able to grow with that. Yeah, Pheasants Forever has focused on being the habitat organization. Should Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever be doing more to attract non-hunters to its membership roles? People who like bluebirds or who like meadowlarks, uh, species like that that are benefiting from grasslands. Is that perhaps an untapped potential area for growth? It's certainly something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, talking about. We try to do that. You know, when you think about the the local food folks that are really invested in that space and foragers, there, are, there have been areas, uh, particularly in the Southeast, where we have had particular uh, animals or um, even actually some songbirds in some of those countries that overlay, particularly overlap with quail forever regions. And, and we are helping those members of the wildlife community survive and thrive just because they also need the same kind of habitat that quail do. And I do believe that that is an important part for us to make sure that people know that there is a way for us to be able to tap into some of those folks. Do I think that they're going to be a big funding stream? No, because I don't think there's a way to do it. It's not like they're going out and buying ammunition and, and things that are going to contribute to the dollars, but they can certainly be part of our community. They can be part of our volunteer community. And actually broadening our base is really, really important. Sometimes when they, they become part of the organization, they take up hunting, but they don't have to. They really, they can just value the habitat work, which is what we do. We've had a couple of women lead important conservation groups in the country. You, uh, Becky Humphreys over at NWTF. Uh, is that uh, a, f a focus, something you want to think about looking forward? How do we uh, expose conservation mission to underserved communities like uh, women and, and minorities? Howard really started this a long time ago with uh, becoming an outdoors woman, which really had its its roots, its grassroots in Wisconsin. And, and mm -hmm. they started talking a very long time ago. We have a, a really strong women on the wing effort and we have 11 dedicated chapters and we have a lot of really invested women in those chapters. When women are involved, families are involved. And that really is the critical way to allow children to come into this space and that we actually were talking about this last week is that when kids get involved, then they are involved throughout their lives. And that's how we make the tradition of, of hunting and conservation sustainable by getting kids involved at a much earlier age. And most certainly we want to broaden that base. And so we have been talking to like the Minority Outdoor Alliance and, and hunters of color. And honestly, we have a lot of communities. You think about just in our backyard in the Minnesota, Wisconsin area, we have a lot of people that are interested in hunting that haven't necessarily thought about what part of that 
is their responsibility to conservation that we want to bring into that community. And we have seen real passion grow in some of those communities, but it's our responsibility to make them feel welcome and that let them understand that they do have a role in it and that we welcome them to those, those chapters and to our events. But I don't think that I'm entering anything new in that other than maybe for some people, it might allow them to say, hey, I can see myself being part of that because I see other people that look like me there. Well, Marilyn, a nice softball here to kind of wrap things up. Uh, Any favorite hunting memory or favorite species you've hunted that you'd like to share with listeners and or readers and perhaps encourage them to pursue themselves? I don't know if it's my favorite, but I will say, so we went Merns hunting this January. And I had never gone Merns quail hunting before. It was the most spectacular experience, not only because they are an incredibly beautiful bird, but the the habitat that they're in is just absolutely breathtaking. This is the desert Southwest country? It was. Yeah. We Mm -hmm. were in the Patagonia area of Arizona. It was, if nothing else, just the most breathtaking experience really good workout too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And really great dog work. And a lot of times, you you know, really awesome dog work doesn't necessarily also predict having tremendous scenery. So having all of those things come together was pretty spectacular. Is there anything that I missed that you would like to share about your experience thus far or your outlook ahead? No, I appreciate that. I think what I want people to know is that this organization is incredibly vibrant and strong and is excited about continuing to answer that call that we know that that the uplands are calling us. It is critical for us to be investing in habitat as a country because we know we're losing it at a faster pace than we can, can build and restore it. We are absolutely committed and we ask you to be part of whether you're part of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever or other partners that are invested in the outdoors. We ask you to participate and not just with your dollars, but with your blood, sweat and tears, because it will only happen if we all make it happen as, as a community. Excellent closing thoughts. Thanks so much, Marilyn. It's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better here over the past half hour. Uh, and uh, best of luck in your new role. I'm sure we're going to see some great things. Thank you so much. All right. Marilyn Vetter, CEO and president of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, based right here in Minnesota. Let's break. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on AM830 WCCO Radio. Rob Jerisline with you for our final segment of this week's broadcast. Appreciate everybody listening and hanging in there with us. Hey, someone who's already been on hold for a while, I appreciate him hanging in there. It's my old friend Mark Strand, and he joins us now to talk a little bit about turkey hunting. It opened this past Wednesday, and Mark, have you already been out uh, helping some young people or perhaps uh, dropping a bead on a gobbler yourself? Hey, Rob. Yeah, you bet. Uh, actually, uh, yesterday I was out with uh, our good friend Jim Walsh, who took his grandson, Quinn, and I went with those guys and just helped them try to get a turkey for during what they call the Wisconsin youth season. So we were okay. just across the border mm-hmm. over there in uh, in not too far from, like, River Falls area. So it's... Uh, uh, but you know what? When I look outside my window right now, it doesn't look like it. It looks like we're talking about the turkey season that will come up in a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, no, the wind is howling. It feels like the dead of winter out there. Yeah, that's a good point. That regular Wisconsin opener, I think, is is it next weekend or the middle of this coming week? Sometime yeah. like that. They get going a little later than us, don't they? 
It opens up on Wednesday okay. of this coming week, and I'm actually going to go go out on on Wednesday uh, as well. So that's kind of my life these days. I I couldn't care less if I ever <laughs> shoot a, another turkey myself. Although I usually find a couple opportunities, you know, each year to do it. But it's so much fun when it's nice and warm and it's not raining to well, uh, to go out there with somebody, especially if they've never gotten a turkey before and. and and help them experience that because it's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Mark, what do you do in a year like this when the weather is so crazy volatile? I mean, we went from 90 degrees to a high of you know low to mid-30s here in, in a matter of days. I mean, I remember a few years ago my dad shot a turkey. He said it had an inch of snow on his back. It, you know, it was in the middle of a snowstorm, yeah. and that, that Tom was still gobbling away. Uh, does the weather have much of an impact uh, on, on, the, on the turkey behavior anyway? Yeah, it, it has a huge impact, and I would say almost particularly so when it's so dramatic, like what we've just had in the past few days. Like you said, we had highs near 90 degrees for like three or four days in a row, and then as you put it, it's it's at the freezing point. The wind is ripping. You know, it's, it's rain and sleet and snow, and what <laughs> happens is it doesn't change. It doesn't change what they call the photo period, you know, or the day length, right. where we have more um, hours, more minutes of daylight time now than we did in the dead of winter. And that increasing photo period is what triggers the hormonal uh, changes in both the, the, the hens and the toms, mm -hmm. uh, tom turkey being, a, being, a, being a, a mature male turkey. And the spring is the mating season for wild turkeys. And so like your dad experienced, there are some turkeys that will remain excited about the mating season of gobbling and strutting and they'll come to the call and blah, blah, blah when it's yucky weather out there. But for the most part, and what we experienced on Saturday during the, during the youth hunt is that the birds were not vocal and they were just, they, they, they appear to almost uh, revert back to, essentially winter behavior where they're basically just trudging around out there and, and foraging and maybe, you know, who, who knows what, but mm -hmm. it's not quite the same as it is on a really nice day. Yeah, but there is a secret to, to having more success than you otherwise would. And I was taught this many years ago by my turkey hunting mentor, Ray, I, a guy from Missouri. If you can learn how to call like another male turkey, so you're talking gobbler to gobbler, mm -hmm. those those birds will talk to each other and come to each other and challenge each other every day of the year, and it's not dependent on them being, um, you know, excited about the mating season. Mm -hmm. So the, when when the weather turns crappy call like a tom turkey oh. more than a hen turkey, and it will greatly it, it, it's it's almost the only way to get one the other other than you know uh, just sitting where you think some are going to walk by. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Good advice, uh, Mark. We just got a couple minutes left here, but why is this turkey sure. hunting thing so addictive? I, I saw Ron Shera talking about it again. A hardcore turkey hunter, Mister Shera, just like you. What is it about these darn tom turkeys that just uh, keeps you coming back year after year after year? Yeah, I think it's the beauty. I think it's it's the the colorfulness of their feathers. I think it's the 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 the, the whole lifetime that you can study what how these birds 
socially interact with each other in a flock, when when strange birds come into an area, how they get treated by the the group that was already together. It's this endless fascination with learning how to communicate with them is what I think does it. And, and it's, it's a really stimulating sport to me because I'm constantly watching these birds and just trying to understand, you know, what they might do next and how I might adjust my calling strategy and how I might position us as hunters to be in, in a place that the turkeys would be willing to come to. And then ultimately what it becomes is that the gobbling and the strutting and the carrying on of the of the male wild turkey and when that bird gets to where especially a new hunter has a chance to shoot and watching them trying to maintain their composure <laughs> try to aim and shoot when when they got a big tom right in front of them so that's kind of what it what it what it is for me at least mark i am out of time i hope to get you on maybe later in the season and we'll, and we'll talk some more thanks a lot for jumping in for a few minutes with us yeah, that would be so fun. It was good to talk to you. All right, take care, Mark, uh, and have good luck you the rest too. of the season. That was our friend Mark Strand, turkey hunter extraordinaire, sharing some thoughts about chasing his favorite bird, the spring wild turkey. Uh, that season, uh, like I said, we started this past Wednesday, but it goes through uh, the end of May. Lots of opportunity left to ha- had. You can buy a license over the uh, over the counter. Stay tuned next for sixty minutes, and then uh, it gets going with a lot of uh, a lot of timber wolves. Go T wolves tonight against the Denver Nuggets. I'm out of time. Rob Dreesline for WCCO Outdoors.